Well, today's scripture reading is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, and chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, God. be to God. Well, you know, who doesn't love a good fight? You know, I remember back in uh, junior high, you know, I grew up in the Minneapolis public schools in the, the, the 1990s. Uh, they were a rougher time. I don't know if this still happens, but, you know, every once in a while you would hear someone yell, fight! And then this, this, this kids just rushed wherever that came from and circle around uh, the prospective combatants until a hall monitor or a teacher came in to break things up. And when you heard that call that there was going to be a fight, there was something thrilling, almost something primal about hearing that. Uh, I personally uh, am a lover and not a fighter, uh, but I did have a couple occasions in my life where, where, where I threw hands. And, um, you know, whereas watching a fight is exciting, finding yourself engaged in a fight is terrifying um, because you're worried about being hurt. But I think even more than the physical pain that's feared is the fear of losing face of being humiliated. But sometimes in your life, you, you, you feel this call to engage in, in combat. There's a line that has been crossed. There's some aggression that cannot stand. 
man. And so last week we were looking at the Jerusalem Council, and that's Acts chapter 15. And it's this great story about the church engaging in debate and dialogue and conflict and coming to a place of consensus. You know that, 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 that Peter and James and Barnabas and Paul, they all come to this understanding that, that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. Circumcision is not necessary. So they reach this decision. They issue a proclamation. Everyone's all on the same page. And so now everyone can live happily ever after. Now, if we've ever been involved in any kind of organization, but the church especially, we, we know that, that endings are never that simple. The things are rarely, if ever, ever so settled. And so this week we're in Galatians. Uh, and instead of these issues being settled, what we see instead is that there is conflict ongoing. And so when we think of Paul's letters, Galatians and Romans actually have a very close relationship in terms of the content that are contained in them. But in Romans, it's as if Paul is writing from these lofty heights. From his ivory tower, he's reflecting on the great truths of the gospel. But here in Galatians, he is down in the streets engaged in hand-to-hand combat. You know, he doesn't mince his words. He doesn't hide his frustration, his exasperation, his disappointment. This is Paul at his most raw, his most vulnerable, his most unfiltered. And Paul wrote Galatians because he had been attacked. And this is him fighting back. Now, it's not fair to say that Paul has just been attacked personally. If this were just some personal insults and personal slights, you know, Paul had seen worse. He had been through worse. But what had been attacked, apparently, was Paul's integrity. And not just his personal integrity, but the integrity of his message, of the gospel that he preached. For Paul, the gospel was something worth fighting for because the stakes, when the gospel were involved, the stakes could not be higher. And at stake was this, the, the central truth about who is Jesus Christ and what exactly has he accomplished And so when we know that, when we understand that, uh, then we can begin to look at the the three things I want us to look at this morning. One, what what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the truth of the gospel. Well, what is that which he is talking about? And second, why is this so personally meaningful for Paul? And lastly, why is this such a great pastoral concern? All right, so first, what is this truth of the gospel that Paul is defending? Now, that's what Paul says is at stake in, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says that he called out Peter to his face. He calls him Cephas here, but that's Peter. That's the great apostle Peter, you know, the rock, the foundation of the church, the disciple of Jesus. He says, I called him out to his face because he was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And earlier at the beginning of our reading, back in chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't learn it from any other person. And so when we're reading Galatians, though, what we have to understand is is we're kind of like listening to half of a telephone conversation. Um, But we can use our imaginations and our our knowledge of of Paul's writings and other parts in the New Testament to kind of see what's happening here, what's happening on the other side that is prompting this from Paul. And so as part of his missionary work, Paul had gone to Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and, 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 and he had proclaimed uh, the good news about Jesus, and, and he had won all of these converts, and he had, he had planted and founded all of these churches. 
largely composed of Gentiles, non-Jews. And Paul preached the gospel to them that they were justified by faith in Christ, not through works of the law. And so people responded to this, churches formed, ministry was taking place, and everything was going fine until some, some, some teachers showed up. And typically, traditionally, they're called Judaizers. But I'm not going to use that term. I'm just going to say that some teachers showed up, and these teachers were associated with the Jerusalem church. And what they said to these churches in Galatia that Paul had founded, they said that, that Paul did not give you the whole gospel. He, he left out some very important details. In fact, Paul left out these details that he himself learned when he came to the Jerusalem church. We taught him the whole gospel. He came, he wasn't a finished product. He, he was this, this, this raw convert. So he came to us and we gave him the whole story. And unfortunately, Paul has left out some of what we taught him. They said that, that Paul left out the necessity of the works of the law, of, of following the Jewish Torah. And not only that, they impunged Paul's motives for doing so. They insinuated or maybe just uh, baldly stated that the, the reason that Paul gave you this law-free gospel, you Gentiles, was because he wanted to make it easier for you. Paul was a people pleaser, right? He wanted to tell you something that would be pleasing to your ears. He knew that if he told you that, that, that works of the law were necessary, that, that, that you would recoil from that or it would be too difficult for you or too hard for you to hear or too strange or too weird for you to engage in. And so Paul is a people pleaser. He's a populist. He's going to water things down. And so here, we're not going to water it down for you. We are going to give you the whole gospel um, um, straight, no chaser. We don't want to make this easier for you or more palatable for you. And so these teachers are going through Galatia, and they're saying that, that Paul had left out some very important parts of his gospel. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, his sacrificial death opened the doors of God's people to Gentiles. But now, but now, but now, he's formed this new family of Jews and Gentiles who, who believe in Jesus and who keep the law of Moses. And the worst part of this for Paul is that these churches he had started, they believed this. They believed what these teachers were saying about him and about the law-free gospel he had proclaimed. They believed that he was a, a people pleaser, and, and he was the preacher of a truncated message. And so this letter is, is Paul's response to those accusations from the teachers and his churches falling away. And he's not mincing his words, and, and his style is basically saying, do I sound like a people pleaser to you? No. Do I sound like someone who's more afraid of people than who is afraid of God? And beyond that, he defends his gospel of justification by faith in the strongest and most strenuous and impassioned terms. He's saying, my gospel is no half gospel. It's not of human origin. I didn't just make it up. He says, I received it by a revelation from Jesus Christ on the Damascus road. And so Paul is not afraid to, to mix it up. And in chapter 2, he, he draws a direct line between what's happening in his churches in, in Galatia. And he's like, this reminds me exactly of something that happened earlier. It was after the Jerusalem council. We were in Antioch, and a very similar episode happened in the church there. And I stood up for myself and my gospel then, and I'm standing up for it now. When he was in Antioch, 
Some teachers had come. The church was going along fine. It was getting along fine. And some teachers came from Jerusalem. And again, they attacked Paul. They attacked his law-free gospel. And they even got Peter to, to withdraw and to compromise. So Paul's saying, just as I stood up to Peter's face then, so I will stand up to the face of those who are impugning my motives now. Because for Paul, he, he, he's not preaching a gospel, a version of it. You know, his own idiosyncratic take. It is the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it's, it's one of the most important verses in all of Paul's letters, all of the New Testament, all of Scripture. Where he says this, he, he, and he kind of drifts from this quote of what he's saying to Peter and challenging him, and it bleeds into this new situation. So he's speaking both back then and to what's happening now. And he says this, A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now this is one of those passages, it's filled with so much rich theological terminology that I just want to slow down and break it down a little bit. This word justification, it's also in other places translated as righteous. It's, it's this dense word and it covers this whole range of meanings. And for us, this is just a religious word. But in Paul's day, this word, to be made righteous or to be justified, it, it covered uh, the legal realm, it covered the moral realm, it even covered the, the covenantal or the relationship realm. So in the legal world, if you were justified, if you were righteous, that means the case had been decided in your favor. You were declared not guilty or, or you were the party that was in the right. And so uh, justified meant your legal status as one who had been vindicated. And this word justified, it also referred to your, your kind of moral character or behavior. To be justified, to be righteous, means that you had acted correctly. You, you were doing the right thing. You were living the right way. You were being faithful. So it had this moral component. And in the, in, in the covenantal sense, in the sense of a relationship, to be righteous, meant that you were in good standing, that you were in the family, that, that, that you belonged, that you had kept your obligations and commitments. And you were include, included amongst those whom God had committed himself to. As so we see how incredibly dense and rich this word is, that it covers the legal, the moral, the covenantal. And it talks about not just our status, but about how we are made that way. And so it's answering this question, on, on what basis does God declare us right? Does God make us right? Which really, if, if we're thinking about it, at its core, that's what justification about is its most basic. How are we made right? How are we declared right? How does God do that? And for Paul, he's willing to go to the mat that the, the only way that this happens is that we are justified by faith in Christ, or uh, it's one, again, it's another one of those rich theological terms. Uh, the more literal Greek translation is, is the faith of Christ, which really means the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which is his shorthand way of saying Jesus' faithfulness unto death on the cross. That's the most natural translation of what it would be. And so Paul's claim, as dense as it is, is also incredibly simple. The only way we are made right with God is by what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
Works of the law have nothing to do with that. And our only response to what Jesus did, the only one that matters, is for us to put our faith in him, to place our trust in him, to pledge our life and our loyalty and our allegiance to him. So that what was true of him becomes true of us. And what follows from verse 16 and 17, 18, it's, 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 it, it, there's not time to sit and sort of go line by line and parse out what Paul is saying. But the message is this, that, that, that when, you, when he put his faith in Jesus, that was, what was true of Jesus became true of him. And that's part of what he means, at least, when he says that, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, or the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now Paul's going to spend some of the rest of Galatians and and some of what we'll read in the next couple of weeks explaining exactly what is the relationship between the law and Jesus' death to try to make sense of it, because Paul is not just denigrating the law. Uh, but, 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 But right here, right now, he wants to stress what is most important, that we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. And so if, if, if there's any other way, Paul says, if, if there's anything to add to that, then, then, then what the teachers are telling you isn't just another gospel, it's an anti-gospel because it makes Jesus' death on the cross nonsensical. Because if there's another way for us to be made right with God legally, morally, covenantally, If there was another way to do that, if there was a way to do it through keeping the law, then Jesus' death is nothing other than just another instance of cruel injustice or or, or kind of a tragic martyrdom. And so I want to put it in, in as stark a terms as Paul did. Is the heart of the gospel about something that we do or about what Jesus has done for us? And the answer, obviously, correctly, and Paul was leading his churches to see this, is that it's about what Jesus did. That is how God makes us and everything else right. And that's the heart of the Christian message, and that's really what differentiates Christianity from, from, from every other religion, from every other ideology, from every other system of ethics or, or, or morals. You know, everything else says that what, what we do is key for us becoming whatever the, the ideal within that religion or, or ideological system is. They say do, but Christianity says what? Done. It's been done. You can't add anything to it. And so the message of Christianity is that grace frees you to live a life of gratitude. Right? There's no more anxious striving, no more trying to, to, to measure up, no more caring about what, what people think about you or even what you think of them so you can compare yourself to them. There's no need to condemn yourself for your shortcomings, and they are many. And we don't have to condemn other people for their shortcomings either. No need to find your identity anywhere other than in Jesus. And, 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 and we live in, in, in an age of an identity. Identitarian age, where we're constantly worrying about who we are and we're negotiating and renegotiating, uh, disassembling and reassembling our identities based on what the culture says is most important about us. Jesus frees us from that. Why would we ever want to go back or live into a different way? Jesus has set us free in Christ. 
We are free. And Paul says elsewhere, don't submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. That's the truth of the gospel, that we're made right by faith, not through works of the law. But now I want to look at why this is so personally meaningful for Paul and why it's such a pastoral imperative for him to address this. Now, it's personally significant for him, and he gives his little biography at the beginning because Paul's saying if anyone in the world would have been able to be justified by works of the law, it would have been me. Paul was, was a Pharisee. He was an ultra-Orthodox Pharisee. He kept the law meticulously, every jot and tittle. He persecuted the church. He hated the church because he thought it was nonsense that a crucified uh, a person could be lifted up as Messiah. He said that's absurdity. And he also saw that what the Christians were doing with this Messiah, worshiping him, what, what, what was crossing the line into blasphemy. And so for Paul, he wanted to deal this bizarre, what he saw as this bizarre, destructive, you know, Jesus cult, a death blow. Because it was for him, as one who was well-versed in the works of the law, a complete corruption and perversion and betrayal of what he held so dear. But then on the Damascus road, Jesus grabbed hold of Paul. And what has to be the most dramatic conversion in, in, in the history of the world, and, and, and the world would never, ever, ever be the same. I don't think there's an analogy we can make to someone who hated and persecuted the church becoming, you know, its greatest evangelist, its greatest apostle. And when Paul points to the difference before and after he met Jesus, one of those was that before he met Jesus, his life was egocentric. When we read his biography, all of the verbs, he's the subject of those verbs. I persecuted the, the, the church of God, he says. But after his conversion, it's theocentric. God becomes the subject. And so for Paul, his conversion takes him from this egocentric to this theocentric version of his life. And, and although I'm guessing many of us in this room, maybe none of us in this room, have had an experience like Paul where we've been you know, blinded by the light and, and stopped in our tracks. For all of us, our conversions are the same. They take us from a, a version of our lives centered on ourselves to one centered on God. And, and that can happen in, in a moment or it can happen over the course of our lifetime. And so for Paul, if someone can be justified by works of the law, then his conversion was totally unnecessary. And actually, uh, the sad, twisted irony of that is that he was closer to the truth when he was Paul the persecutor than when he was Paul the apostle of grace. And if it wasn't Jesus who grabbed hold of Paul on the Damascus road, then the question he has for the teachers and those who claim he's a people preacher and he's not teaching the whole gospel is, well, who was it that got hold of me? And finally and crucially, I want us to look at for why for Paul the, the truth of the gospel wasn't just a personal thing, it was a pastoral thing. And so when he's recounting what happened in Antioch, we see that what really got Paul was not the personal insults. It was what, what, when the teachers showed up, what they did to the church, what their law-centric gospel did to the church. You know, what had happened was Paul had gone to Antioch, and he, and he had established this con congregation that was made up seemingly in equal parts of, of Christians from a Gentile, a non-Jewish background, and Christians from 
a Jewish background. And this law-free gospel, uh, this justification by faith gospel, had this church composed of both groups equally. And they were worshiping and they were eating together. This beautiful picture of the new humanity that God creates in Christ. And then some people come down from Jerusalem and they say to Peter, you know what, this is, could harm the, the Jewish mission. And so, you know, what we need you to do is, is to be sensitive about the scruples uh, of those people. And so please, you know, withdraw yourself from that community. And Peter hears this and, and he agrees with Paul on the substance of the issues. But he says, you know what, I want to be sensitive. I want to be respectful. And so he thinks that this is going to be some kind of private move, that no one's going to notice what he's doing, that he'll just absent himself from that church community and, 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 and he'll be able to kind of, you know, strike a, a middle road and, and no one's going to be any of the wiser and things will go on fine. But he's wrong. As soon as people notice that Peter has withdrawn himself from this congregation, all of the other Christians in that congregation from a Jewish background withdrew too. And so now the message is clear. That Christians from a non-Jewish background are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And they will always be that way. They're always going to be second-class until they become law-observant. And so this action gave lie to that great Christian witness that, that God had made no distinction in Jesus. He made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That all were made right on the same basis, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so the message that was sent by Peter and even Barnabas, it's breaking Paul's heart, and other law-observant Christians was that, that non-law-observant Christians would always be less than always be less than in their eyes, and by implication, they would always be less than in God's eyes. That Jesus' death on the cross and their faith in him, it was not quite enough. That they needed to add something extra on top of that to, to complete, to perfect Christ's work. And so this division in, in, in the church, this withdrawal, this separation, this, this segregation, it wasn't just a, a sociological concession to the scruples of the Jerusalem church. Paul says this is a theological surrender. And it, is a, it, 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 it impinges our witness to who Jesus is and what he did. The truth of the gospel is called into question by this move. And so for Paul, this was such a scandal that he called Peter, Peter, out to his face. And so here we see that Paul's rich theology, right? This, this, this justification by faith uh, gospel that, that launched Christianity, launched the Protestant Reformation that, that we're still proclaiming today. What, what occasioned this was not him sitting back and doing some esoteric, you know, theologizing about how an unrighteous sinner is made right in the eyes of God. But it was sparked by the very, this, this world, real world challenge of ethnic segregation and separation in the church. And so justification and the gospel, they're just as much about that as they are about the status of the individual sinner in the eyes of God. And so once again, we are dealing with a both and situation. It's not an either or. It's a both and the inextricable connection between Christian faith and Christian life, between justification, how we're made right with God, and sanctification, how we live rightly, both and. 
the both and between the gospel and, and, and its implications you know, between what we believe and how we live. The both and of our worship and our witness. And in reading this passage, I, I couldn't help but think of, of a story from American church history. It's the story of a man named Richard Allen. I don't know if you've ever heard of Richard Allen before, but if not, you will now. And Richard Allen, he's, he's famous in church history because he founded something called the African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's actually the first uh, black, first African-American denomination in American church history. And, and Allen is this fascinating figure. You know, he's born in 1760 in Philadelphia. He's born in, into slavery. And in his teenage years, he becomes a Christian through, through the, the, the home mission work of the Methodist Episcopal Church. And the Methodists were incredible. Um, I mean, they were started in, you know, born out of the Church of England, but they were this revivalist denomination. The Methodists would go anywhere, you know, famous for their horseback preachers going out and riding the circuit and these revival meetings. And then they would reach out to anyone, you know, working class people and, 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 and people of African descent, slave or free, didn't matter. The Methodists would go anywhere and they would preach to anyone. And so R Richard Allen is converted and, and he actually, in his teenage years, he begins preaching. And he even converts his master uh, to the Christian faith. And, and, and he purchases his freedom. And he becomes this pillar, this leading figure in the Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. And at this time, you know, whites and blacks are worshiping together in, in the churches. But there was segregated seating. And you can sort of guess how that segregated seating worked, right? If you're black in the same church as the whites, you need to go sit up in the balcony, or we have some nice chairs lined up for you against the walls. And one Sunday, one of Alan's closest associates, this guy named Absalom Jones, he, he committed an act of, uh, of ecclesiastical, ecclesial disobedience in a church that, St. George's Church in Philadelphia, and it had only recently actually adopted this practice of segregated seating. This was an innovative practice before people could sit together. Well, they take it up, and so um, Absalom Jones and some of his uh, fellow black congregants are, are kneeling in prayer in, in what was called a white pew. And a trustee of the church goes over to him and he grabs him and he says, hey, you got to move. You can't pray here. And Absalom Jones says, okay, just let us finish praying and then we'll go move. And the trustee says, no, if you don't move now, we're going to forcibly remove you from the church. And so Absalom and these Christians, they, they finish praying and then they get up and they leave the church and they don't come back. And this is one of the catalytic moments, the catalytic events for the formation of, of the AME. A church where black Christians wouldn't be under white control and wouldn't be told where they could sit or, or who could preach and teach and lead. A church where they wouldn't be treated like second-class citizens, second-class Christians in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure the analogies are clear here, and, and I say this not to judge the Methodist Episcopal Church actually. Because if you think about it, they were actually going out and preaching to people and engaging with people. And one of my seminary church history professors said, you know, he was asked, okay, what does you being a Christian, like, how does that impact your work as a historian? And he said, it's simple. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Because he understood that history was going to look back at him and judge him the same way that I look back and judge what happened around the turn of, you know, with, with the, the 1800s in Philadelphia. And so I use this example because it seems to me that Paul's gospel of justification by faith 
it speaks directly into a situation like that. That, that what had happened was that they had failed to grasp that Paul's message that God treats all people equally without distinction. And that in Christ all are equal at the foot of the cross. And that that type of segregation in the church was contrary to the truth of the gospel and was hypocritical to the extreme. And what this incident also illustrates for me are just the deep theological resources that we have within the Christian tradition itself. Uh, when we think about racial justice and reconciliation, and, and you know, there's, there's plenty of debate in, in the church and the culture between you know, the, the so-called woke and, and, and the anti-woke, uh, between those who, who just embrace things like critical theory as this necessary analytical tool to understand uh, the, 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 the racial situation in our country and those who come from a more liberal uh, perspective. And, and so you, know, you have the critical theory perspective and its emphasis on equity and, and, and the you know, more liberal, classical liberal position and its emphasis on, on equality. And, and, and it's kind of like this battle going back and forth. And my attitude when I, when I look at this is uh, of, of St. Augustine. So, you know, Jesus, numero uno. Paul, number two. St. Augustine, number three, in my mind, in, 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 in the development of, of Christianity. We're all arguing with Augustine you know, um, whether we love him or we hate him. And Augustine was this learned, this incredibly learned man, the saint of the church. And, and, and he was, you know, at the top of his class when it came to pagan learning. And he was this brilliant Neoplatonic philosopher. And he had mastered rhetoric and he had mastered logic um, and philosophy. And so, uh, and he brought those to bear in his analysis and, and explication of Christianity. And when he was asked why, when he was challenged, why are you using pagan learning? To explain the Christian faith, he said, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm plundering the Egyptians. So he's making this analogy to what the Israelites had done when they left Egypt for the promised land. They had gotten the best treasures of Egypt to take with them. And he's saying, that's all I'm doing. I'm just taking the best that my pagan education give me, gave me in service of God's truth, in service of Christ, in service of the gospel. And, and so my thoughts and my appeal in the midst of some of this strife and struggle is, is, is that we just assume the spirit of St. Augustine. Take whatever we can, whatever is of value and of worth from, from secular or non-Christian sources that can help us understand the world and further the mission of God. And we can have a debate about what those sources might be, what those good resources are, how helpful they are. But at the end of the day, we can also then recognize that the best resources that we have, the best tools we have at our disposal come from our own theological heritage. And that, that there is even untapped potential for thinking and living Christianly when faced with the issues of our day. And this gospel of justification by faith is one of them. Because as we see, it's at the heart of what it means. What's the truth of the gospel? It's right there. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to live Christianly and to be the church. And it was hard for Peter to grasp the full truth of the gospel. And it was hard for our brothers and sisters in, in, in the Methodist Episcopal Church in the late 18th century to grasp the full truth of the gospel. And it's hard for us as well. But thanks be to God that, that it's not up to us to get everything right. And, and even as we muddle through we believe that God has us covered. 
And we think about when we look at, at church history and we look at, at its bright points, but its many sad failings and dark points, uh, I love this quote from Chesterton that gives me hope. He says, I do believe in Christianity, and my impression is that a system must be divine which has survived so much insane mismanagement. And so there's grace for us. There's grace for us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's grace for the church as, as, as we work through the great struggles of our day and the questions of our day. There's this grace that comes through faith, through trust, trusting in Jesus. And there's nothing we can do or we can add to what he's already done. And so faith is the way we receive that gift. Faith is the way we open that gift from God. And faith is the way that we live it out in the world. And so it's as simple and as complicated as that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.